going to be looking at today, Psalm 5. And as you're able, please stand with me for the reading and the hearing of God's word. This fifth psalm has for its inscription to the chief musician upon Nehalot, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. And in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord. In thy righteousness, because of mine enemies, make thy way straight before my face, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsel. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous with favor. Wilt thou compass him as with a shield. Let us turn to the Lord again in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, help us to gain understanding this day of of your justice of the reality of your punishment of sin. But even as we consider these things, Lord, help us consider your mercy provided through the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us as we turn now to consider this all and may it be done for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are now turning to Lord's Day number four in the Heidelberg and Orthodox Catechism, where our teacher of the Catechism has brought us to this subject of the justice of God. And so we could basically title the Lord's Day number four, the just character or the just nature of God. And so what they're they're really trying to bring out for us, the milk, if I might suggest that, of this uh, Lord's Day teaching in this Catechism, is that God is just and that he will do justly always. But perhaps the meat for those who are more advanced in the faith is is seeing how all of these different uh, aspects of theology come together and play together. So in one sense, we have at the very forefront today, theology proper. We're dealing with the nature and character of God. But we're also following up on this theological topic of, of the doctrine of man, theological anthropology, and also the doctrine of sin or hematology. And so all of these different loci of theology are coming together here, and that's what we're looking at. So there's something for everyone, even in this simple catechism as we work through it. Now, we opened today or this afternoon with this fifth psalm. And if we're honest with one another, it's it's difficult. It's not difficult because it has something that's hard to understand in it. 
It's difficult because it's an imprecatory psalm. It's calling upon the justice of God to be done. That makes a lot of people uneasy and even a lot of good Bible-believing Christians. They don't really know what to do about uh, imprecatory psalms, but we need to at least read them and study them and gain understanding from them because all of Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Even these imprecatory psalms that we might not necessarily pray ourselves. But now we turn to consider this justice of God. Keep in mind, we just followed up uh, in the catechism from last week. Uh, So it was dealing with our sin and uh, things of that nature. And the last question that was asked, are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? And the answer was, indeed, we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. And so we pick up today... With that in our minds, that we can do no good, that we're wholly corrupt, and only by the work of the Holy Spirit in us can we do any good. And that brings us to our first question for the day. Question 9 of the Catechism reads, Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? And that is a challenging question to start us off this afternoon. On the surface, it strikes at the very character of God. Is God being unjust in his dealings with man? How can a good, benevolent God hold man accountable for something he is unable to do? Wouldn't that indeed make God unjust if that was the case? Imagine parents, uh, a parent punishing a child, a small child, because they're unable to lift a heavy weight. If I went to Magnolia and said, hey, Magnolia, pick up this 50-pound weight, and if she couldn't do it, if I punished her, that would be unjust. She's not physically able to lift that weight. But when we look at this question here in the catechism, we're not dealing with something of that nature. The question is getting at much, something much deeper. Was man created in such a way that he was unable to perform what God had commanded? And if he was at one point able, what is stopping you and me from keeping the law? These questions have already been answered at least in some way so far in our catechism, but now we're bringing them together and and considering them in light of the nature of God. And so now the answer is framed to this question, no, no. Not at all. God is not unjust. For God made man capable of performing it. But man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. So we see in the first part of this answer, of this first question, question 9, that man was originally able to obey God. For God made man capable of performing his law. You may hear this expressed in Latin terms, you know, those fancy $1 words, $5 words, posse non peccare et posse peccare. So if you read any kind of theological, systematic theology, you might run across those words. But it simply means that man was able not to sin, but or and man was able to sin. And so it's in that state, that original state where there was a choice. Uh, an act of will that had to be committed to either not sin and obey God, but or to sin and disobey God. And so that was how man was created in his original state. 
He was indeed able to obey God, making God just for holding man accountable to his law. Oh, but what about original sin, you might ask? You know, we, we didn't have that option. Well, our teacher anticipated this question. No guilty party is left out here. As we continue reading in our answer, but man, by the instigation of the devil, has made himself unable to obey God. We read in Genesis, the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die, for God doth... I think I jumped ahead. I'm sorry. Um, going back to our original sin, God made us able to obey, able not to obey. We have original sin through Adam, our first parent, our first father. Uh, but as we consider now original sin in light of this question of, of God requiring us to obey his law, we have to think again of, of Genesis, of what happened in the garden, of that deceit that, that did occur. That it was by the instigation of the devil that man disobeyed God. Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So as we consider this question in light of what has occurred in the fall, we see that the devil indeed is guilty. He's guilty of being the tempter, of the deceiver. He's guilty of swaying the opinion of man against God. And while the devil was active there in the garden, as pictured in that serpent, uh, he only tempted the woman. He only tempted Eve. He didn't make Eve take that fruit and eat it. He didn't force it down her throat. He simply presented her with some options, some options that were contrary to the will of God, some options that inspired something in her own heart to disobey God. Tempted to question the character of God, tempted to seize more than what she had been given so graciously by God, the woman saw that fruit and took it herself. It was her own willful act that she took that fruit. And so man's own willful disobedience was what deprived him of those spiritual gifts of being able to obey the law of God. It's not an accident that that word willful, that adjective, is placed in there. It wasn't by some ignorance or, or anything like that that man sinned, but it was by willful action that man sinned. Don't ever think that it's acceptable, children, to say, well, the devil made me do it. And, and adults, too. I mean, we might fall into that temptation of like, well, I, I was tempted to sin here and it's not really my fault. That is never an acceptable answer. Don't think of your sins as little things, as a mistake, a little mishap. That is completely false. We'll get into that a little bit more later as we continue working through our questions today. But we have to realize here as we're considering this first question that there is a heart level issue involved with sin. It radiates from us. It is our radical corruption, our total depravity that's in view here. It's no different for me and you as it was for Adam and Eve. It was not out of omission or ignorance that sin entered the world. It's not out of omission or ignorance that we commit sin. It is the willing action of ourselves. It was the willing action of our first parents. They were made able to obey, but willingly chose not to. And so God is indeed just for holding them accountable for their sin. But the question remains for us, how does this all relate to us? 
We've already seen last Lord's Day that we're unable to do good. We're hardwired with corruption. We're programmed to hate God. Have you ever thought that you would, uh, you would have to keep God's commands in the garden? If you had that chance, have you ever thought about it? Well, if I was there instead of Adam, instead of Eve, I wouldn't have eaten that fruit. Perhaps that has come across your mind. But the reality is that Adam was the perfect representative for you and for me. We often express this in the technical phrasing of uh, Adam was our federal head. This is not something we're unfamiliar with. We live in America and we have what's called a representative democracy, a federal government. And the fact that another represents us in the decisions that we make. And so in the garden, Adam represented us. And so we would have sinned just the way that Adam had. The only difference between the garden and the U.S. is the fact that we choose our representatives, but God chose Adam to represent us. And how are we to argue with the perfect will and decree of God? So Adam was our federal head in the garden made able to obey God, but willingly chose to disobey. And through that, he deprived not only himself, but all of his posterity, every human being that is born through natural generation of the ability to obey God. And this is the point that Ecclesiastes, the the, the preacher Solomon in Ecclesiastes, makes when he says, Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but... They have sought out many inventions. It's the wickedness in the heart of man, that willful disobedience and rebellion against God. Paul reinforces this in in Romans. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. It is through our federal head, Adam, our representative in the garden, that sin entered the world. That that willful disobedience occurred, yes, instigated by the devil, but willfully undertaken by our first parents. And so God is just and righteous to hold us accountable to his law, even though we are not able and not willing to obey it. So what then will God do with sin? And that is our next question for the day. Question 10 asks, Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? If God is just in punishing sin, how will he go about uh, taking care of this? Will he he wait to have it uh, rectified? Will we get the answer here? By no means. But that is God. God is terribly displeased with our original as well as our actual sins. And will punish them in his judgment temporarily and eternally. As he hath declared, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. As we read in our passage opening up this afternoon in Psalm 5. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. God abhors sin. Our corrupt nature, our original sin is repulsive to him. Our pride 
and our idolatry, idolatry reek in his presence. Our lies and our covetousness are loathsome in his sight. Our deeds, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, are filth fitting for the garbage heap, fitting to be destroyed. Just as God is just to require perfect obedience, even from sinful man, God is just to punish sin. It is a recourse for the law. It is a way to repair what has been broken. Punishment is a maintenance of justice. It maintains justice. It corrects the the wrong action. God must punish sin if he is to be just. While God may hate the sin and love the sinner, that's probably something that you've heard, God loves sinners but hates sin, it is not the sin itself that suffers. Sinners will face the righteous wrath of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Many people today are indifferent to God. They find the idea that a God in whom they do not trust would hold them accountable to his law absolutely repugnant. They can't wrap their minds around that. It's so distasteful to them. But the moral law of God is inherent to, to our human nature. We are made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. Those people that would think of this as, as something absolutely repulsive, they may see themselves as non-combatants in this spiritual warfare. But in reality, they are actively rebellious against God. There's no middle ground here, folks. You are either with God or you are against God. Even if you think of yourself as somewhere in the middle, unsure, that is no place to be because you are indeed against the true and living God. And as rebels, they're fitting recipients for God's declaration, cursed be everyone that continueth not in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So then how does God punish sin? First, God does so temporally. As you read through scripture, you will read of God's temporal judgment of sin. The first occurrence is immediately after the fall when he takes Adam and Eve and he casts them out of the garden. And as he's doing that, he takes this uh, this unnamed animal and slays it and clothes them in its skin. It's seen through the unfaithfulness of Israel in their wilderness wanderings, how they disobeyed God. And so God had them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. It's seen even as they enter into the promised land and they go to overtake uh, the land that God had promised, the land of Canaan, and how at times, because of their unfaithfulness to the commandments of God, God grants them defeat. We see that as they interact with the people of Ai as they interact with the Philistines, as they interact with the Assyrians, as they interact with the Babylonians. Genesis 20 even records God's curbing of sin through the the revelation to a pagan king, to Abimelech, that Abimelech hadn't even sinned yet, but God was warning him that he would punish him if he did not let Sarah, the wife of Abraham, go. But it's not 
isolated. God's temporal judgment of sin is not isolated to the Old Testament. We see it even in the New Testament. Perhaps the most stark example of this is in uh, the, the account in Acts of Ananias and Sapphira. How they had effectively lied. And so God, being just, struck them down instantly. And it should serve as a great warning to us, even, even today, that God will temporally judge sin. It even occurs in the life of believers. We think of the life of David. We think of good King David. But David wasn't perfect. He indeed did sin. And we think of his life after the consequences, after uh, his actions of sin with Bathsheba. And how so much was lost because of a result of his sin. And so God was judging his sin. He did not forget David. He did not utterly cast him out, but he did allow his judgment to be passed on David in a temporal fashion. We should not show ourselves to be fools by not considering that God uses frowning providence to draw his people back to him. We can think of the disasters and the calamities that we experience in the world today. And we would be fools to think that it has no correlation to sin But we could also err the other way and and think that it's only because of sin. But when those calamities, when those frowning providences do happen, dear Christian, think about it. Consider your heart. Are you you walking in, in besetting sin? Is there some unmortified sin in your life that you've not dealt with that now you're facing at least perhaps some temporal judgment of God? So those are things to consider. God will judge sin. Not just temporally, though. God will judge sin eternally. As terrible as God's temporal judgment against sin may be, it's nothing. It pales in comparison to the eternal and ultimate judgment of God. As Paul wrote to the Hebrews, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Physical death, my friends, is is not the ultimate judgment. There's that spiritual death that God could judge you with for sin. It is the fitting punishment for sin. It is God actively oppressing your rebellion and squashing it with all his omnipotent vigor should you fail to turn to Christ. There is no joy in having to preach about the subject of hell, about the subject of the eternal wrath of God poured out against (coughs) sinners. The thought of hell, dear Christian, should should bring us to a point of sorrow and weeping for those who willfully are running down that broad road of destruction to, to go to hell for the sake of their own happiness, for the sake of their own comfort or whatever it may be. It is only by grace, by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, that there's any hope for you or for me. It is the only way of escape. We can either stand alone, condemned in God's judgment, or rest in the finished work of Christ as a recipient of God's mercy. But, lest we should presume upon the mercy of God, thinking that we're owed it, our teacher then puts forward our final question for consideration today. Is not God then also merciful? In which he answers, God is indeed merciful, but also just. 
His justice requires that sin, which is committed against the most high majesty of God, be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. God is indeed merciful. Let's never forget that. God is indeed merciful. He is long-suffering. He is faithful to forgive those who rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's covenant faithfulness. This is his hesed, as we, we talked about as we worked through the book of Ruth. When Israel had sinned at Sinai and the tables of the Ten Commandments were broken, God called the people back to himself. He called Moses back up that mountain with two new tables of stone so that he could give them the law again. And as Moses was there to receive that law a second time from God, God appeared to Moses. And he did not pronounce of himself the Lord just in wrathful. No, God pronounced of himself, as we read in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. God is indeed merciful. And thanks be to God for that. There's no other hope for us except for the mercy of God is displayed in Jesus Christ. While God is indeed merciful, though, God is also just. His mercy is extended not as a form of justice... Not as a form of injustice, but as a form of non-justice. And so God can be just in extending this mercy because he's not acting unjustly. No sin goes unpunished. Even those who God is merciful to, their sin isn't just forgotten about without any sort of reparation. God's justice requires that the judgment of all sin is there. There is no sin that will go unpunished. The book of Job reminds us that for the work of man shall God render unto him and cause every man to find according to his ways. Sin, dear friends, will find you out. Even those that you have hidden from your own self, that you've deceived yourself into thinking you haven't committed, God will show you in due time that it's there. Among the many grave errors of our day is the low view of sin. People who don't like to think of sin are quick to see it as something that can easily be swept away. Is not God also merciful? They ignore the evidence presented by God in his own word. The Apostle Paul unequivocally declares that the wages of sin is death. Elsewhere he writes, without blood there is no remission of sin. Death is the debt of sin. It is what is owed by everyone. Think of that first sacrifice in the garden where Adam and Eve were clothed with the skins of another. Think of the countless numbers of bulls and goats that were were sacrificed through the Old Testament as atonement for sin, as sacrifices for sin to make an atonement to appease the wrath of God. But beloved, think of that ultimate sacrifice that was made for you and for me by the Lord Jesus Christ. (coughs) Oh, it is an extreme thing. Many would even say that this propitiatory sacrifice is grotesque. The reality is that it barely captures 
the repulsive nature of sin. Sin is the most heinous form of rebellion. It is cosmic treason. When we sin, we are rebelling against the all-powerful creator that made us. The only fitting punishment for sin against the most high majesty of God is the eternal punishment of sin. Sin, by its very nature, is eternal. It's a transgression against the eternal God. Sin cannot repent for itself. There's no way to repair what has been broken. By sin, that is. Sin can't go and pay some debt in itself. But the debt of sin is infinite. The eternal punishment of sin in hell is described only by analogies in Scripture. And so we think about that as we read through Scripture, that those uh, descriptions of hell, they're simply analogies. They're only doing their best to capture the reality of the eternal judgment of God. Some of the descriptions, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, torment by fire and brimstone, where the smoke of torment rises up forever and ever, a place of no rest, the lake of fire, the fire that will not be quenched, the worm that never dies, the outer darkness. You probably at some point in your life have been afraid of the dark. But that's not the same kind of darkness that's described here as the outer darkness. It is the absolute removal from any joy or any blessing that can be found in God. And it's only the wrath of God forever, consciously observed, tormented by it, unceasing. Some may try to convince you that sin can gradually be paid off. That the eternal nature of hell is something that is just not true. They might propose something like purgation or the cleansing of sin through purgatory. Others may put forth a universal application of mercy where uh, they simply say that God will be merciful to everyone. They, those people, the universalists, would fail to see that Christ himself was the most fervent teacher of hell. Others still may say that those who lack faith will simply be annihilated. They, they will com- be completely eliminated from existence, and so that's the, the point of view of annihilationism. But these views all share a common foundation contributing to their heretical nature. And that's not a word that I use lightly, nor should you. The fact is that these viewpoints are indeed damnable heresies. They fail to see, as we've mentioned, the sinfulness of sin. They don't see the true nature of sin. But they also slander the justice of God by ignoring or even downplaying the fitting judgment of sin. They ignore the true nature of hell. Not simple misunderstandings. Not light errors. Those who hold these viewpoints, dear friends, they're leading not only themselves, but all those who would hearken to them down that broad way. It's essential, essential to understand the character of God particularly the fact that God is just and that God is merciful. 
the source of our misery is our rebellion against God. Knowing that God is just and will do all that he has said. We're in and concluding this section of the guilt of man. So in this threefold division of the catechism, guilt, grace, gratitude, we're now coming to the conclusion of guilt. That's not by accident. Our guilt is so obvious, so monumental, we cannot even mount up an argument against it. That is the source of our misery. We know the state that we're in apart from Christ. We're preparing, though, to move from guilt. From guilt, as we read about it in the Catechism, to that of grace offered by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to keep in mind, as the old evangelical saying goes, uh, God's wrath is real. Hell is hot. Sin is wicked. But God's grace is freely offered, dear friends. So even in that misery, even the reality of the uncomfortable situation we've been in this afternoon, speaking of the real nature of sin, considering the eternal conscious torment that we all deserve by our rebellion against God, grace is freely offered. If you are here today without Christ, think on these things. Think on where you would be. Think of where you are going, not just in five years, but for eternity. God is just. He will justly judge your sin. He will not let it go unpunished. He hates your sin. He will destroy you if you continue in your rebellion against him. You are condemned without any hope of paying your debt yourself. Your greatest need is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the friend of sinners. Christ has become sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. The wrath of God is satisfied in the death of Christ. All that debt that would have been owed by you was taken upon by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only way in which you might be saved from this wrath of God. Flee to him now. Flee to him from the wrath that is to come. Today, this very day, the gates of heaven have been opened unto you. That if you would receive this and you would go to Christ and seek his forgiveness and repent and turn from your sin. God is indeed faithful and just to forgive your sin because he has put it upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn now to him. Do not Go today without dealing with this matter. Seek the mercy of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But dear Christian, we should also think of this ourselves. Are we ignoring the reality of hell? Have we brushed it off because we have been saved from it? We've escaped this wrath of God by God's grace. Do we, do we ever consider the state of others, their great need? Not for world peace, not for the resolution of world hunger, not for the, the end of climate change, not for the stop of fascism or communism or any other worldly problem, but for the resolution of sin. To be drawn away from that road to destruction and go into the narrow path that leads unto glory. Do you ever consider the state of your friends, of your family, of your neighbors? Do you ever think about telling them 
about the Lord Jesus Christ, about their great need. We've been called to this, dear friends, dear Christians, beloved by God, that God has entrusted us with the message of the gospel, the good news. It's good news not just for you and me. It's good news for the whole world because the whole world has been condemned by sin. And it's only through Christ that any might be saved. How would we withhold this message? Why would we withhold this message? Oh, dear Christian, think about this. Think about this as you go through your day-to-day life. Those that are walking in ignorance and willful disobedience, that they're heading to the, the rightful wrath of God, the just punishment of sin in hell. Dear friends, today, we might take away from this that God is indeed just, that God will justly punish sin, that he will do it with righteous wrath, not the wrath of man, not any kind of unjust nature in himself, that he will do it absolutely righteously. He will do it eternally. He will do it unendingly. But there is that hope of mercy. God is just, but God is indeed merciful. Not to rest ignorantly and expecting mercy to be done, but simply going and seeing that he will give it to all those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, Lord, thank you today for your word. Thank you for helping us to consider this this difficult topic of, of your judgment against sin, of the reality of hell. Lord, we pray that you would work in the hearts of those who do not know you to to realize their state before you, that they will be the just recipients of your wrath, your eternal wrath, lest they turn to you, turn to Christ in repentance. Lord, we pray that you would work in their hearts to do so. We pray that you would enable us as believers, as a church, to to go out and, and strengthen us to share the good news that you are indeed merciful, that you are indeed just, and that these things that might seem incompatible are absolutely Uh, compatible, that they go hand in hand, that they're fast friends, that even in your mercy, you are still just because you have poured out your just wrath on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as those who you have called by your grace, elect before the foundation of the world, Lord, we pray that we would not think lightly of sin, that we would not think lightly of the sacrifice that has been made to purchase us from your wrath. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us Strengthen us for the work that you've called us to in sharing the good news so that we would be honest in in realizing that uh, we, as human beings, that we are sinners, that we are in great need of your mercy, not denying your justice, but upholding all that you have rightly set forth in your word and may it all be done for your honor and glory. These things we ask in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.